thank you for joining the Azure Wrap podcast today. My name is Kathan Chopra, and I am your host today. For those of you who do not know me yet, I'm finishing my pain fellowship at the University of Michigan in two days, and we'll be moving to private practice soon thereafter. Before I begin the podcast, I just want to make a few announcements uh, for ASRA um, overall and some of the events that we have coming up. On June 30th, we have a peripheral nerve, peripheral nerve stimulation uh, webinar, um, and that starts at 7 p.m. on June 30th. It's a live webinar where we can discuss how to use uh, peripheral nerve stimulation as an opioid sparing technique in acute pain management, uh, which is not really a realm that we consider using it in as of now, but one that um, we may use more and more in the future as the technology in our field continues to advance. The great thing about it is that it's free for Azure members and you can join by going to the Azure homepage. So be sure to go there and register as soon as you can. The second thing I wanted to talk to you about is an Azra and Ezra International e-Congress um, that we're going to be doing on September 19th. It will be 24 hours of virtual interactive content discussing regional anesthesia, acute, chronic pain, really everything that you could think of. Uh, by the major experts in the field. Whether you're an anesthesiologist, pain physician, or you do a little bit of both, uh, very rarely, I think, do we get an opportunity that we're, you know, we have this much content on one platform at, at one time. Uh, so be sure to register for this on the, on the Azure website. And the best thing about this is for Azure members, it, it's free. Um, so be sure to check it out. Uh, so on to today's podcast. Uh, so one thing that I wanted to mention before we started this podcast is that I have no financial disclosures or anything like that uh, in relation to the content of this podcast. So um, I remember exactly one year ago today pretty vividly. Uh, I, I was finishing my anesthesia residency and, and about to start my pain fellowship at the University of Michigan, and I wasn't really sure what to expect. Um, you know, for three years I had really had not limited patient interaction, but in terms of the amount of talking I did. Um, really, I only discussed the surgery, you know, the anesthetic plan, and pretty quickly they were off to sleep. Um, so it had been a long time since I, you know, really worked in a clinic setting or, or did um, any type of pain procedure. Uh, so the goal of today's podcast is to, um, is to sort of help that version of me um, from, from a year ago and answer some of the broader questions that I think, um, um, you know, the pain fellows coming in might be having. Um, and we can start a discussion and that can be carried out in, in the live chat that we have today through the podcast, um, or it can be carried on you know, over time uh, through our social media accounts. And um, like I said, the reason I chose to do this uh, was because I wish that that version of me one year ago had uh, what we're doing today. And, and I had four uh, amazing guests today, uh, the first of which um, he's a board certified interventional pain physician and anesthesiologist. He is the University of Michigan's Pain Medicine Program Director, and he's also my Program Director, um, and he will be for at least two more days. Um, so I would like to welcome you all to Dr. Gidars Blomersai. How are you doing today, sir? Well, great. Thank you so much for having me on, Kathan, and congratulations on, on virtually being done. Yeah, for two more days. <laughs> so, um, the, so the first part I wanted to talk about is, um, you know, the first three months of a pain fellowship can be pretty challenging. Um, it, it's in the sense that we do have board exams that we need to study for. Maybe we're moving, um, you know, cross country, um, and, and it's hard to really, you know, get right into the, you know, into things to start off. Um, as a program director, what exactly, you know, would you expect from a fellow, let's say, in the first quarter of their fellowship? You know, I, I don't, I don't have any, you know, personally, I don't have any set expectations. Um, uh, of an incoming fellow outside of, um, you know, just having a fellow who is engaged, uh, inquisitive, uh, striving to, to learn. I mean, 
it's a pretty long journey uh, to make it to a pain fellowship. And my expectations are of someone that has kind of climbed, climbed that mountain to get there uh, to be really involved. And, and that really, it, it goes beyond the first quarter. Um, it, it's kind of what I expect of the fellow throughout the year that they're, that they're with us. Um, I think if the fellow comes in with that mentality, uh, I'm, I'm going to work, I'm going to ask questions, I'm going to be involved, I'm going to get as much as I can out of this, then that's where the program steps in to nurture that and really provide the foundation uh, to, you know, foster some of that, um, you know, growth that should occur. Um, so, so no, you know, formal expectations, you know, I, I see a lot and I, and I get asked a lot of questions, you know, what, what do I read and how do I prepare and how many, you know, blocks should I do? Uh, you know, those you know, those are great. And that's, that's important. Uh, the, the education that you have attained up to reaching the fellowship is, is very important. Uh, but that doesn't make or, or, or break a fellow having a certain number or reading something. Um, you know, a fellowship to me is all fellows start off equal and, and grow from there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you said that. Cause I think, um, the first three months for me were just kind of tough. I felt like maybe I wasn't, uh, just giving as much as I could. Um, you know, I'm so used to just diving right into to the field that I'm in, and it was just tough balancing, you know, studying for anesthesia boards and 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 also trying to learn a field um, that's kind of quite different than from you know my field initially. And, and one of the things that I, I love at U of M uh, was being paired up with a mentor um, from day one. So it, the way it works with our program is that we we're paired up with a mentor on day one, and we get to work with that person uh, on a weekly basis. And so my my question is, what is your advice to fellows who who may not have this type of program uh, in place? Um, and they want to seek a clinical mentor, and, and how soon should they do that you know, after they start their fellowship? Um, you know, you, you mentioned that we do have a mentor-mentee program. Um, you know, we, we believe in that. We, uh, we think that having that longitudinal one-on-one -on -one interaction, um, you know, uh, is it, helpful uh, for uh, fellow growth and, and fellow um, independence, you know, moving forward. Uh, I think whether, you know, you get assigned, uh, um, a mentor or someone, um, is, is not given to you. I think that that'll come with time. You, you know, you've made it to this point, you've made it to fellowship. And, um, I think that if you don't have one, there's no rush to finding one. Uh, you know, medical school is done, you, you've done your internship, you've done your residency, now you're in fellowship. I think you've made it here. Uh, you know, the program that you've interviewed, is, it's a mutual wanting to be there, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, it's great. If you come in, you walk in with an interest, you have something that you know you're passionate about, and you know that the program you're going to join has that person, um, you know, along that you know that has those same interests, great. You know, uh, meet up with them, talk to them, open up that dialogue. And most faculty across specialties, not just in pain medicine, will be more than willing and happy to foster that. Great, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but if you don't, it's fine too. You know, no worries. I, I don't think there's a timeline. I don't think like, oh, I don't have a mentor in three months. What do I do now? You know, wh wh you know where do I go now? Take your time, figure it out uh, slowly. Uh, see who aligns with you and then and then approach them.
Yeah. And I think even if you don't have an established mentor necessarily in fellowship, even having it in your practice uh, afterwards, you know, joining a practice with a senior um, you know, faculty, things like that, you can establish a mentor that way. Um, and, and the one thing I, I like about having a mentor overall is just getting sort of weekly or even monthly feedback on growth. And it's always, a, as a trainee, it's hard to know whether you're getting better or really, really where you need to be at. Um, so having that mentor was helpful in that way. Sort of a vague question, but what do you think growth looks like over a year? And, and more specifically, I'm asking, um, you know, from day one to day 180 to day 365, what do you, how do you, how would you characterize kind of growth that you would, you'd want to see in a fellow over the year? Um, so you're absolutely right about having the mentor and it's and in our program, that's critical to the process uh, of, of having, again, going back to that longitudinal one-on-one -on -one interaction uh, to help establish that growth and assess it uh, at uh, quarterly. I mean, however your program does it, quarterly, every two months, uh, at the halfway point. Um, uh, growth is difficult to say, you know, I, I can't tell you, you know, Kathan, this is what growth is going to look like for this person at, at, at this time. I think growth is very individualized. I think um, every, I mean, we have eight fellows. Um, I, I'd love for them to move uh, in unison and uniformly from point A to point B, whatever those, you know, point A to point B is, uh, but it doesn't work that way. And, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a combination of, of uh, assessing those the fellows, um, you know, assessing those candidates and seeing how they're doing. We all have, you know, all ACGME, so there's milestones involved, um, you know, and, and making sure that the fellow is progressing through the milestones. And I think with that set, it's a two-way contract. You know, the, the fellowship has the obligation to really uh, find, uh, you know, deficiencies if they exist, uh, nurture strengths, and the the two-way contract so to speak is is what i said at the beginning with the fellow coming in engaged and inquisitive and, and hard working to you know if a deficiency is picked up um you know that they that they strive to improve it and work on it so it's like a, it's a two-way back and forth uh that occurs but you know i can't tell you that there's a a definite you know you're going to get from point a to point b this is what it's going to look like in each and every single person every year i have eight fellows and for the most part, it's eight separate trajectories, none of which are wrong, and all of them which the fellow gets from point A to point B by the time it's done. Absolutely. And, and, and beyond that you know, year, um, if there, there might be some fellows right now that are still possibly looking for jobs, maybe taking a little bit of a break, or, or applying fellows that are looking you know, into the future. And uh, what do you think is the biggest challenge today uh, after finishing a fellowship and moving into the you know, quote-unquote real world as a fan position? You know, I think I think different forums have have talked about all the a lot of the challenges. You know, it's I think it's difficult to point to one um, in the short term. Uh, you just look at the world, and it, it's it's easy to see how there are various different things going on, different forces um, that are happening right now uh, that affect um, you know not just pain medicine but medicine. And I think. Um, you know, we're, we're not in a vacuum. Um, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know specifically how that's going to turn out, how that's going to go. And um, what I would say longer term, I think as a, as a profession, as a field, it's uh, up to us to um, really 
look at our own specialty and continue to prove and demonstrate that, you know, through thoughtful science and clinical data, that we are, um, you know, providing unique value to uh, the health care systems that we're a part of, that we're providing value to uh, the communities that we're involved in, uh, the consultants that ask for our help, and um, the patients that we serve. So it's it's kind of it's kind of a combination of both uh, and all those things at the same time. Uh, I, I don't think it's anything specific, um, and and so I think moving forward, those are going to be some of the things that we're going to face as a as a specialty. Yeah, uh, just demonstrating value and, and being a good consultant, I think, is really uh, the best thing that we can say in a time that's it's pretty uncertain, um, I think, for every sort of field of medicine. Um, thank you so much uh, for taking the time uh, to be with me today, Dr. Bromsade. My pleasure. Have a wonderful rest of the night, okay? Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Kathan. Uh, of course. All right. Uh, my next guest um, is, is, uh, will be Dr. Shravani Darbakala. She is a board-certified interventional pain physician and anesthesiologist. She joined the faculty of the John Hopkins School of Medicine in 2017, where she previously served as the Director of Medical Education for the Pain Treatment Center and the Program Director of the Multidisciplinary Pain Fellowship. She is the current course director of the School of Medicine Pain Course. She created and produced a really awesome neuromodulation video curriculum called Pain Rounds, uh, which you can find at painrounds.org. And she has also been featured on NPR uh, for her education innovation and was recently recognized uh, by BMJ Rapham for uh, her International Women's Day. Dr. Dabaka, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. How are you doing today? Good. How are you, Kathan? Thanks for having me. Good. Of course. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about pain rounds? It, it was something that I, I heard about um, a few months ago, right right when um, sort of the quarantine hit. And, and when I was, you know, we were sort of forced inwards and indoors, it, it was like the perfect thing for me to be indoors. And, and have this type of curriculum online. So tell me a little bit more about it, what motivated you to do it, what it is, and how can we access it? Uh, great to hear that you were able to use it and that you benefited from it, uh, first of all. And um, second, Pain Rounds is a digital neuromodulation curriculum. So the idea is for the video sessions to be truly interactive. Um, they are sort of fun. They have cadaver lab demonstrations. They have games. There are some interviews that are a little bit more dense. Those are usually, those are kind of like in the beginning in the fundamental section, but there are also a lot of really fun elements to the curriculum. It's set kind of like a late night type of thing. Like you can see it's set in a studio setting. And I think it's a fun way to really learn the material. Um, what's cool is you get to hear from all of the experts from around the country, or many of them at least, and they were all really excited to come to Hopkins and do this for all of you guys to benefit from, which was super cool of everyone who came all the way up to Hopkins like on their free time to do this and um, to really provide all this awesome expert knowledge for everyone to benefit from. So it's a free curriculum. It's online. You just have to register at painrounds.org. And um, I've currently kind of stopped giving access for um, now for the next few weeks because I'm just editing some changes from the last year based on feedback. 
And um, it should be up and ready to go again, you know, in another two weeks or so, right in time for the beginning of your fellowship. Um, the idea being, you know, you could watch this maybe right before you get into the OR or as you're getting into your first cases and get a really strong foundation. Um, I was lucky to be able to pilot it on last year's class, but they were at the end of their training, which was good and bad um, because good because, you know, they were able to benefit from it, but bad because they probably weren't able to benefit from it soon enough. Right. Um, but I think it's a it's a really great, great thing for you guys. Yeah, it was really awesome. I mean, we had Dr. Peterson, Dr. Deer, Dr. Chow, Dr. Lee. I mean, it was like an all-star lineup, uh, all kind of in one platform. So that was really awesome. Uh, one of the things that you you also did, um, uh, you uh, hosted a, a pain didactics course uh, at Hopkins, uh, where you did a 21 hours of uh, mandatory pain didactics for the first year medical students, which I think is amazing because I got zero hours in medical school. And that's not really a slight to my medical school. I just think that the way we thought of pain, you know, three, four years ago versus now is vastly different. What do you think the, the future of our of education in our field is moving forward for fellows who maybe want to get into academics and, and uh, maybe be a part of a place like Hopkins and be maybe the next Dr. D and, and create the next pain rounds? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, academics is super promising. I mean, there's only so many places in the world that you can really impact the next generation, right? So um, to impact fellows every year is very awesome. But I wanted to take that further and impact medical students, um, particularly in terms of chasing the opioid crisis. So why chase it, you know, at the end of training and then practicing physicians without chasing it really at the getting to it right at the beginning of training. And that was the idea behind this 21 hours of pain education. The medical school was amazing and actually built this time into the curriculum as a mandatory class for every first year medical student. So that was awesome. And it has a test and, you know, it's a, it's a typical class, if you will. Um, so that was pretty cool. I think what's great about academics is the future of this field. It's constantly evolving, right? So this field is only about 40 years old um, and it's growing and changing all the time. So there's a new device out that all the time. There's a new study about it, an existing device. There's, there's so much to learn. And if you're interested in research and growing the field, there's tremendous uh, potential for that. Um, and academic centers certainly can facilitate. I know University of Michigan has amazing opportunities. Hopkins certainly has research opportunities um, and many places around the country. Um, it's a great time to get involved in research. And I think that um, is a special thing about being in an academic setting is really being able to change the way people think and the way that people view this field and to make an impact that sort of transcends, you know, the patients you see every single day. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the one constant you hear about everyone in our field is that the field is growing and there's no stagnation at all. Right now, we are, we are truly on the ascent uh, in terms of the things that we're using and developing for our patients. Um, but like all other fields, I think our, our field is impacted by obviously COVID-19. Um, and I think we're starting to see this shift where education becomes more virtual and, and webinar based by necessity. And it's something that I don't think will go away because um, I think there are some positives to it. And um, it's something that I think we'll continue to do into the, into the future, um, even, even as face-to-face -face events become normal again. What do you think um, you know, we should anticipate as fellows as we turn the page into this decade that's, that's marked with this element of uncertainty? Well, I think, you know, just keep in mind that although it's, you know, maybe a, a little bit more of a difficult time to learn things, um, the field is just ever growing and ever changing. And it doesn't mean that like when you get out into practice, 
there's not COVID's going to be over and there's going to the demand is going to pick up again. It's already picking up like many academic centers, at least are doing cases and doing procedures. But we've also sort of found ways to navigate around this. So, for instance, um, I'm currently working on virtual reality based simulation training for wow. spinal cord stimulation and different procedures. Um, there's pain rounds, which we've already talked about. There are these kind of and there's, you know, webinars and the societies have really put together additional training opportunities in the context of COVID. So there are all these additional things that are available to you guys and people have made this extra effort because of COVID to transition things to online learning and virtual journal clubs and one thing that was very different this year was the amount of multi-institutional collaboration which I think is a big change from the past not that we didn't have it before but certainly not to this extent so we um, you know University of Washington Brigham and Hopkins and a few other places University of Chicago I think was involved put together like a pain homeschool program that was um, every day at noon there was like either journal club or lecture or different things that were happening there was jeopardy all these different elements that were put together for uh, like a pain homeschool we've never had that kind of like you know multi-institutional collaboration on a daily basis so there's really opportunity here to learn from more than just your own faculty and i think that's there are some real benefits to this this experience yeah, I think like the with collaboration, content evolves, and we can all learn from each other. There's no need to be you know fractionated or anything like that. And, and I think in regards to content, you know what we're learning overall in fellowship is changing too. Um, there have been so many advances in neuromodulation and all these various different procedures that are out there in the field. And it's more like addition by addition in the sense that it's not replacing anything else. It's just right. being added in. And um, but some institutions might not necessarily have you know the cases or, or the resources to to offer maybe as many cases as, as a particular fellow would want. Um, what what do you tell the fellow that may not have um, you know as many of those opportunities in their fellowship, and what what can they do beyond fellowship to try to you know achieve some of those goals and do the things that they want to do? That's a great question. So I think um, you know one of the reasons I made pain rounds was on. think might have lost her audio there can you hear me now okay uh, you're back yes great okay. so so there are a lot of resources that are available right like so that was one of the reasons i created pain rounds but beyond that it's really this pain network expands beyond your institution and there are people that you might meet at meetings or um, you know at uh, various events who would be very happy to mentor you through procedures that you don't know how to do or take you under their wing. Some people offer like an ability for you to go to their practice even and watch them and learn from them. Um, there are cadaver lab training opportunities that extend beyond fellowship. Um, so there are still a lot of opportunities. So if you don't have that network at your institution, then look, a, look outside of your institution and try to get that um, experience because it is there. You just have to seek it out. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, you know the collaboration between a lot of you know different universities and organizations can help with that too. There's more pooled resources, I think. And, and overall, like like you discussed earlier, I think we've done a really good job of coming together. I think over the past few months, especially, uh, I think it's kind of ironic that it took sort of forced separation to really bring us, I think, closer together as a field. And, and one of the mediums um, that I think has helped us sort of grow all together has been Twitter, uh, which you yourself are quite active on. And, and networking in general, I think I've learned is quite important in this field. What's your advice uh, in regards to networking within the field, whether it be Twitter or some other uh, media or platform in an age where we might not be able to be, you know, face to face uh, for some time? 
I think it's amazing because it personalizes people, right? So if you watch like pain rounds, you might not feel comfortable met, like emailing me a question. But if you if we connect on Twitter, you know, you can just drop me a message in my inbox. And that was actually like how I met Susie Moshler and some really awesome people in this field is just through Twitter. We would I got a hold of you by the way, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So um, that's a great way to con communicate with people. And it's also like less intense than an email. So if you see someone at a meeting, you can just like message them on Twitter, include them on your post, and all of a sudden they remember who you are and you're keeping that connection going. Um, and that is one way to really expand your network. Other than that, I would say don't be afraid to, um, you know, they teach us like in all of these classes that we get, leadership classes, et cetera. Self-promotion is important, right? Everyone needs to know what you're doing. And the reasons why, and it feels strange at first, it really does, but the, it's important to tell everyone what you're doing because when an opportunity comes around, someone should know to think of you. And if they know what they're interested in and they know what you're doing, then when that opportunity rolls around, someone will know to pick up the phone and call you and say, hey, you like you know, spinal cord stimulation. I see you tweet about it all the time. You, you posted journal clubs on it on Twitter or whatever. And so you would be a great person to participate in this project. And so that's a way for you to, so don't think about it as self-promotion on Twitter or social media. Think about it as a way to increase your network, increase your net worth, and show everyone what your interests are so that they can think of you. Fantastic. Amazing advice. Um, that's the way I've been trying to use it. Initially, I was kind of hesitant. I just didn't want to you know, come off as self-promotion in a way. But I think, in a way, it, it's good to do that. Um, you, you want to promote yourself. You want to sell yourself. And, and, and that way, you can meet more people. Like, I got to talk to Dr. D live over on, on, our, on our podcast. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure finally getting to meet you. Thanks, Kaitan. Great questions. Of course. Take care. Hey, everyone. This is Raj Gupta. Quick interlude to the podcast. Kathan did an interview with Daywood Saeed right here in the middle of the show. However, the audio quality was not up to par, and I didn't want to put it on the live stream. If you want to see Kathan's full interview with Dr. Saeed, go to Azra's Facebook page or YouTube page, and you can see the full video interview at that location. Thanks. All right, uh, so our next guest and our last guest for the evening is the chief of pain, the pain medicine division um, and the program director of the Multidisciplinary Pain Medicine Fellowship at the University of Florida. He is also the president of the Association of Pain Program Directors, which represents the, pro the pain program directors in, in the country. He is Dr. Rene Pascora. How are you doing today, sir? Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Kaden. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, we're doing pretty well here down in Florida. We're nice weather. And I appreciate the opportunity. No, thank you. So I, re I really appreciate having you on um, because it's a good time for me to pick your brain as well. Um, so just to start, I think a, a year is a really short time uh, for a pain fellowship, especially for, for all the things that we're doing and the way that the field is growing. And, and you know, you even talk about it on, on, the, on the University of Florida website. You have a video there that you talk about how things are evolving specialty. And, and I think it's growing so fast. Like I said, it's tougher to fit everything into one, one year. How do you, you know, fellow talks to you, you know, how do you take the most advantage of this year and maximize your opportunities during the one year that we have? I mean, that's, that's a very good question. And I think even in my class, we struggled with that. And the current fellows will be struggling with that or, or it is a concern. Um, my advice basically is not to, I say, stress out too much about it. Yes, it's a very busy year. Uh, again, you're going to get your primary certification. You're going to look for a job. You may relocate. And then you're going to learn pain medicine and all those things. 
One advice I think what I can give the incoming fellows is to listen to yourself where you want to see yourself, where you want to start off in which practice, what type of practice you want to do, which locations, where you want to be in five years. And sometimes it's quite helpful. Uh, you already know when you match to which program to reach out to the current fellows or the graduating fellows, you know, but then uh, academic year and to see, you know, how are things going with the program? Um, let's be fair. What are the strengths? Uh, what are the weaknesses? And if there are weaknesses, and again, every program has weaknesses because nobody can teach everything in that one year. Uh, uh, reach out how the program addresses those those call it weaknesses or perceived weaknesses. So that's that's one opportunity. And then you can always come in in, in a positive mood and say, okay, I know what to expect. And you know, we also frequently rely on the fellows coming in and stimulating us, you know, and making things better, you know, or making the next step of the next uh, procedure. I think as the president of the Pain Program Directors Association, I can tell you that uh, all the programs deliver a fantastic product. Uh, is everybody happy with how it is done and, and what experience you get? The answer is no. That's just the nature of it, you know. And uh, however, if you look about, you know, for example, we're going to have later on discussion points and your experience with certain procedures, you know, I think the bottom line is you can uh, make a patient assessment, that you can make a diagnosis, you know, that you find the right patient for the right procedure. And again, let's say you don't learn certain procedures, let's say a disc procedure. However, you know anatomy, you know how uh, fluoroscopic guidance, you know how to place a needle in this structure. So even if you feel you haven't had a lot of exposure in your fellowship, you know how to, I would say, just adjust the needle half an inch to another target and can place it in there. So that's one aspect to look at it. It doesn't necessarily mean per se, you have to have done everything, every pain procedure. I know nobody has done it. Actually, nobody's actually practicing that. I think most or even in private practice, academic medicine, we all have a certain focus, not practicing everything. So take that stress out. Don't go into your fellowship and always stressing out, oh my God, they don't have enough stimulators or COVID-19 will limit my exposure. That will not be the case. And again, it's the bottom line, the experience you want to get, the good foundation and on which you can expand on interventions where you felt you haven't gotten enough in your fellowship, or let's say uh, the new ones coming down uh, out of the research pipelines. So I think have a positive approach, talk to the current fellows what's going on, you know, listen to yourself where you want to be and look uh, what are the strengths, what are the rotations that the program you matched into. Great. Yeah, I think that's been kind of the common theme. Uh, the, learn the core things, you know, anatomy, uh, imaging, diagnosis, driving the needle, and then everything kind of expands upon that, uh, especially when you're, when you're in faculty. Um, and, and speaking about more about how, you know, it's a year fellowship, you're not going to fit everything in, but I think as a trainee, um, I've always, you know, we all hear about research and getting involved with research and things of that nature. We all like doing it while we're in training because we have some more resources and, and access and things like that. Uh, what is your advice to how we should devote our time to research in a year that we're also trying to be as clinically and procedurally sound as we can? Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, you know, the fellowship programs are all academic programs, so we want you guys to do research, you know, to get us to the next level, to stimulate us, you know, to, to keep the specialty going, to make us valuable to our patient and, and healthcare and the society. That's one aspect. Now, we want to have a realistic approach, like I said, is a one-year 
fellowship. So I would say what counts first is being a solid pain physician, being a solid clinician. Once you have achieved that and you're going to achieve that among your fellowship, then it's reasonable, you know, to participate uh, in, in a research uh, which is established at your fellowship rooms. And there are variations, to be fair. Some have maybe basic research, some have more clinical research, some have more, some have less, some may have none, and you just make the, the basic uh, requirements, you know, for the ACGME requirements. So, again, I would say I would reach out at your program what's there, what's available, but also listen to yourself. So you want to know what you need to make for the requirements. You want to know, you want to be an academician, you want to be a good community pain physician. And again, they have a solid skill, they're needed. And actually you can do research in your private practice. You don't need to be in a big academic center. So listen to yourself, what do you want to do? And also what you want to invest and then also talk to your program, communicate with your program. Again, if you know when you're matched, is, is, is a good idea, you know, not like the last months of the fellowship, you know, you want to do research, that's too late. If you want to do more detailed research, IRBs or lab research, or you want to take time off during your fellowship, you know, my advice is talk to the program early on, as soon as you match, you think that's the idea, or get an idea of what is available at the program. So because I've from our fellowship, I would say we have opportunities, again, from basic to clinical, uh, most prefer the clinical, and of course, want to be sound clinicians, so that fits well. I think that's the first step, being realistic. You know, of course, I can say I want to have everybody in age. Uh, now, of course, you would question my medical faculty if you say I would expect that. So again, uh, a realistic approach to things which are there. What I want the fellows to take out is uh, that research, the question or scholarly activity or education, education of the community, of the referring uh, uh, physicians, didn't finish after with the fellowship. So when you go on in your practice later on, let's say being an academic center or in a public world, um, think about doing research, you know, and research can have various aspects. You can cooperate with the industry, you can do your own protocols, you can look at your own outcomes, you, you can submit those abstracts to the uh, meetings, to the annual meetings to stay in exchange and in um, Those are all the options uh, you have. You can submit grants, again, you don't need to be in an academic center. So, and also, again, it's not pure research, but again, I call it, you know, you want to educate to see that you and uh, uh, get your community, the new physicians, you know, your expertise, you say what you can bring in and you now you can train all your patients, you know, what's there. What are the new options? What are the non-opioid options to treat chronic uh, intractable pain? You know, for example, like spinal stimulation. But again, you're the expert, so you need to go out and you need to uh, disseminate that information, same as what you do with research, you know, you have a new finding. Great. Yeah, and I think a lot of our academic programs have research coordinators too, so just getting in touch with them early, um, I would recommend early, just at least give them a shout because if you wait till December, you have six months left and then you might not be able to get the ball rolling on something. Um, one thing that I've noticed in our field, you know, as our field continues to grow, um, you know, I, I even look at University of Florida, we're starting to accept, um, you know, uh, residents from all types of, you know, backgrounds, uh, anesthesia, psychiatry, ER, neurology, psychiatry, I think that's, that's awesome. And, and we may have people from those specialties listening today. And is there anything that, you know, 
people from each of those paths or, or some general advice that you can give from you know all these walks of life that come into our field uh, that might help them from their training in their fellowship yes so I think the, the, the good news is that uh, pain medicine is expanding, you know, the primary uh, specialty to get access. And again, if you go in a pain medicine fellowship, you want to get your certificate, you know, ACGMB, I think that's for your future uh, very important. And we, for example, we trained uh, ER physicians, we trained neurologists and psychiatrists and we had anesthesiologists in our training program. What I would advise the first question is again is the soul searching why you want to do why you want to become a pain medicine physician that's for everybody not for the i call it the classical specialties like uh, physical medicine rehabilitation and anesthesiology but it's for everybody who wants to do a subspecialty training you know why you want to do it um, how can your primary specialty help you with that what are the obstacles down the road and, and let's be fair if you come from the more other specialties such as uh, uh, ER medicine or neurology, you know, it is, it's maybe it's harder to get into uh, uh, an accredited training program. But again, the first thing is from an applicant perspective is to really think and reach out and do your research, your own one, why you want to become a pain medicine physician. Maybe it comes because to an ER physician, you see, for example, the problems of opiate crisis and recurrent pain coming in not taken care of. And you can say how your experience in a primary specialty might reflect in a pain medicine fellowship, or maybe as a pain medicine fellowship might be quite different than what you're thinking. You know, so that's the one aspect. Why you want to do it? Then, if you're not sure, like with any sub specialization, you know, reach out to the guys who are doing it, or the guys who are in training for it. You know, there are training programs again with the APPD, if you go via ASRA, we can connect you and there are no stupid questions. So that's my credo. There are no stupid questions. You can say, why did you do pain medicine? How does the training look like? Uh, so you're not going to be surprised when you're later on in training and then you have that uh, experience where you think, okay, that wasn't what I was looking for. So do your soul search, reach out, talk to your private practitioners, talk to them, you know, even if you're thinking about other uh, specializations, you know, talk to them while they're doing it, look what their clinical life looks like so that you can make a, a, a solid decision if you know, if you want to proceed to a pain medicine fellowship. I yeah, think great. I'm glad you mentioned that. Go ahead. Sorry. So that's what I'm saying. Reach out because the, the first aspect is um, I cannot convince you to do pain medicine. You know, I can tell you the pros and cons, uh, the problems, uh, the good things, uh, the long tunnel, the end of the light of the tunnel after 10 years of training. I can tell you all that and probably where the future is going. But you need to make your own decision if this is a specialty which is for you. So that's the first. Again, you can help. There are several ways to look at it. I would say reach out, talk to the ones who are doing it, the ones ones who may did it and no longer doing it or, or failed on it it sounds negative who made a different decision to move on so get all those different aspects in and then look to yourself where do you see yourself what do you want to practice and then if you say pain medicine is something for you you go for it great and i'm glad you mentioned that you know azra we have a great network of people and if you are a member of azra or even thinking about it just contact uh, one of us and we can put you in touch with someone who can really provide some of that mentorship 
um, that I think we talked about um, you know earlier on in, in the podcast. Uh, and then one last question I wanted to ask, because I remember like on July 5th, I was already hearing about, hey, have you started looking for jobs? And I was like, oh my gosh, I just started and now, now I have to think about jobs. Hey, kind of, if you could just briefly touch on it, when should you start looking for jobs? Is it, is it never too early? You know, what, how, would, how, do you, how do you feel about that overall? I don't know. I think I started off this podcast by saying, don't raise the stress level too high too soon. Just don't make uh, people nervous. I would say, well, of course, as early as possible. If you start your life fifth, you're too, too late in the game. No, take the stress out. Really take the stress out. I would say, um, of course, the sooner the better. And the one aspect is when you are you doing your soul finding to become a pain physician, you know, maybe you have an opportunity to attend some of the meetings, some of the local meetings, you know, some society global meetings, the big national meetings, Azra ASA, you know, spine. And then connect with the providers. Make your decision which geographic area you want to practice, you know, if you're free or if you pretty pinned down, let's say, for families and reach out to the providers that the groups there, the academic centers there, and say, okay, uh, I'm interested, you know, can we get, I think, the communication going, you know, I'll be graduating then and then. Can I be considered, you know, are you expanding your practice? So that's that's my approach. So I probably would not wait till, I would do it very early on in the fellowship, probably in fall. Again, I think most of us have to do the primary certification in what is it august i think for most of us uh, uh july till september once you have done that that also means you're settling in your fellowship you're settling in a new location i think then you start looking what we call for for, for jobs and, and you may be looking and you may get an answer only late in spring and you're getting pretty nervous again that's quite possible so again start looking i would say the earlier is the better but have a realistic approach um, feel free to reach out, talk to your program, talk to your alum, where they were going to, you know, you there, the big uh, societies, including ASRA, you know, they have uh, uh, networks, you know, they can have placements. So those are all the, the aspects what you uh, can use. And again, if you are pretty tied down in a local geographical area, which is also a high demand, uh, of course, the sooner the better. And, and a lot of times uh, it goes via, I say, personal connections, you know, that's still how it is. So reach out, get a list, work with your program, you know, we want you to be successful, for example, so we're happy to help what we can do. So that's my advice right. regarding job placements. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for calming. I think a lot of people's nerves and telling people not to, to stress out too much as they start their fellowship. Uh, it was a pleasure and an honor having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to all of us today. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. All right. Take care. Have, Have a great night. Great. So one last thing. Um, I know we're coming on an hour here, um, and uh, I just wanted to kind of rapid fire a few things as a fellow um, that I think I can discuss um, just, you know, about to finish my fellowship. Um, I think one of the best pieces of advice uh, one of my attendings, uh, Dr. Srinivas Shibori, gave me uh, was think of your fellowship as not even nine months. Think of it as maybe even eight months. And not to stress you out too much, but I just want to give you some perspective. Um, because the first two months or so um, are going to be kind of really tough to dive into to the field because you might be studying for boards. You might have just moved from another you know, state or something like that. 
the final month, you know, you might be moving to another state for your job, um, and then you have a month of vacation. So you really only have like eight or nine months to kind of get everything in. And one of the things that I recommend is creating sort of quarterly goals for yourself. And, and these goals can be designed based on your fellowship curriculum. Um, you know, for example, if you want to focus on lumbar for two months and then cervical and thoracic and stim, um, something like that, just to give yourself some structure. Because I think um, in, in fellowship, the days can be somewhat random in a way. You know, you might be doing, you know, a cervical RFA followed by a stim, followed by a hip. And there's really not a whole lot of synergy in those procedures outside of needle manipulation and things like that. So, so creating some type of uh, structure for yourself, I, I think, is very important. One of the questions that I got is what textbooks do you recommend using? Um, for procedures, I recommend this one, uh, the Atlas of Image Guided Spinal Procedures um, by Michael B. Furman. It's a pretty common book that's used out there. Uh, it goes over floral procedures in a very easy to follow way. Um, there's really great drawings of the anatomy so that, you know, oftentimes when I first started, I was like, what in the world am I looking at with a floral image? And this book does a great job of, of drawing things out so you can visualize uh, what you're really seeing. Uh, in real time. And then also the new edition talks a little bit about ultrasound uh, procedures and things like that. For actual content outside of the procedures, there is this book uh, by Benzin, Rathmel, Wu, Turk, Argoff, and Hurley. It's called The Practical Management of Pain. Um, it's not too dense or anything like that. Um, I thought it was uh, you know, quite helpful just for content uh, and, and studying for boards and things like that. So those are the two books that I thought were really great. And, uh, but obviously talk to your fellowship, you know, they, they, they probably have some books that they might recommend. And I don't think there's really a wrong answer uh, when coming to that. Uh, last question I wanted to go over is what is a typical day like? Um, a typical day, um, when, at least when your procedures, and even in clinic, for me, starts the day before. It's almost like when you're in anesthesia, you always look up your cases the day before and um, be prepared. You know, you want to know what the procedure the patient's getting, why are they getting it, what does their imaging look like, and, and what was used uh, in the last procedure, if they had it before, the last thing you want to do is start the procedure and insert a needle um, that's too short when you should have known um, they should have had a longer needle for the procedure. Um, looking at the imaging is very important. You're going to get told that over and over, and you're not going to realize how important it is um, because you're going to think, oh, like there's a radiology read. Like, why do I need to read this myself? And I have no idea what I'm seeing versus what a radiologist saw. Um, but ultimately, the, the onus is on you to learn how to read images and learn how to read the MRI because you are going to put the needle in, in that patient. And if you there's something on the MRI that wasn't mentioned or casually glossed over and then a complication happens, um, it's on you. Um, so you want to be able to just rely on yourself um, for that. And in terms of clinic, um, I'd also look the night before just to see if there was any interesting patients um, because uh, you, know, you want to learn as much as you can um, from your clinic days as well and see, um, you know, you want to get the best out of that day. You don't want to just go in a clinic, clock in and clock out. You want to learn um, exactly the best things that you can. Uh, I got a comment on what was the first book that I showed. The book that I showed was The Atlas of Image Guided Spinal Procedures by Michael B. Furman. Excellent book. I loved it. I recommend it for everybody. Thank you all for taking the time uh, to be with me today and to be with all my amazing guests today. I want to thank all my guests and, and especially all of you um, the viewers uh, for taking the time to join me today. My Twitter is, and I will put it up for you, uh, KChopraMD. Uh, feel free to tweet at me with questions, send me messages, with whatever you want to do, because um, I'm here for you and I'm here to help. Um, you know, all of my current you know, generation positions with the future ones as well. Um, take care and have a great evening.